Wonderful words to that hymn. Wonderful words. I begin with a question. What does it mean to live a good life? You know, every culture has its own way of capturing what it means to flourish as a human being. Throughout our history, uh, people have come here to America from all parts of the globe in search of a better life. Uh, And often, you see, that good life is understood in terms of political freedom and economic well-being. People come here with the American dream of escaping both poverty and oppression. But as I've observed it, in our current cultural moment, those values of personal freedom and material wealth have morphed into a new desire. What is now held up as most important to human flourishing in our culture could be characterized as the fulfillment of the self. We live in a culture in which authentic individual self-expression is our highest value. You ever think about this? A philosopher and social observer Charles Taylor calls it the age of authenticity. And he puts it this way. By authenticity, I mean the understanding of life that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And that it's important to find and live out one's own version of the good life as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside, whether by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. In other words, it's now commonly assumed in large segments of our culture that we most flourish as human beings. We enjoy a good life when we discover and express our own unique identity. Authentic self-expression is our highest end and our most prized possession. We live in an age of authenticity. As someone has put it, authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who, you, who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. And inherent in this notion of authenticity is nonconformity. The point of nonconformity is being true to yourself as opposed to whatever self others want you to be true to. True authenticity must come from within yourself. And that's why so much of the drama of our culture these days comes from casting off social constraints, uh, established gender roles, fixed sexual identities being prominent among them. No one, not even my own body, can tell me who I am or how I'm supposed to dress or act. Now, I think most of us may realize that Disney movies are a prominent purveyor of this culture of authenticity. Uh, I think of Elsa from the movie Frozen. Now, if you have a young girl in your household, you will probably know about Elsa. You probably have heard her sing, let it go, let it go. Don't be constrained by the demands of those around you or of any source outside yourself. You must be true to yourself, your true self, whatever you may feel that it is. It is time to see what I can do, Elsa sings, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free to be me. The goal of life, you see, is to discover your own unique essence and to express it freely. And you can be whatever you want to be. You mustn't let society or morality or even biology tell you what you must choose. In our current cultural moment, such authentic self-expression 
That's the assumed way to happiness and human flourishing. Now, like it or not, this is the world we live in. This is the cultural air that we all breathe. So what are we to make of it? And how does this relate to the message of the gospel? Well, first, I think we need to affirm that, generally speaking, authenticity is a good thing. We should admire this concern for truth as opposed to uh, pretense and posturing that can so easily characterize our lives. We should want to be genuine as opposed to fake. Uh, Jesus, as we know, had a particular disdain for hypocrisy. And as we'll see, the gospel calls us to authenticity in our lives. And it's also true that the gospel calls us to a kind of nonconformity. Paul says it quite clearly. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, he says. We're not to be squeezed into the the world's mold, which is very easy to do. But paradoxically, the nonconformity that the gospel calls us to is a challenge to the very authenticity that our culture champions. For the authenticity that the gospel calls us to is not a matter of finding and expressing ourselves, at least not our natural selves, our fallen selves, our sinful selves. No, the gospel calls us to find and express our new selves, our new self in Christ, that self that is being renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit of God within us. And so we're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world so that we can be conformed to a new pattern. We're to be conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. You see, this is where our true humanity is to be found. This is the way to real human flourishing. It's not found in affirming and expressing ourselves, but Jesus says it's in denying ourselves. Jesus said whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The good life is a life which puts off the self-centered sinful self and puts on this new self found in Jesus Christ. And what does this new self look like? Well, supremely, it is a life of self-giving love. And Paul sets this out so clearly in Colossians chapter 3, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Since then you've been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together 
in perfect unity. Do you see it? The the true self that we're to find and to express, that self that we are to be authentic to, is not our old self, our earthly nature, with all its ugly expressions of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, filthy language, deceit. No, no, we're, we're called to be authentic to our new self, who we now are in Christ. That's what we're to put on. That's what we're to express. And when we clothe ourselves with Christ, when we're living authentically as those united with Christ, we will display the character of Christ with its whole host of virtues, which are summed up and supremely expressed in that virtue of love. You see, this is the authenticity that leads to human flourishing, for this is the life for which we were created by a God who is love. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. And John, in his first letter, echoes this. He says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So you see, love is the supreme reflection of the character of God as revealed in the person of Jesus. And the goal of the gospel is that we are born again. We are animated and renewed by God's own spirit so that we might be conformed to the very image of Christ. And that's why Paul can say that that we can do all things, we can know all things, we can even sacrifice all things. But if we do not have love, we are worthless. In the sight of God, we are nothing, we gain nothing. And Paul can say, in God's eyes, it's not whether a person is circumcised or not, being accepted before God is not a matter of religious ritual. The only thing that counts, he says in Galatians 5 6, is faith expressing itself through love. Ephesians 5, follow God's example, he says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Yes, now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now, I've said all this simply to introduce a passage from Paul's letter to the Romans that will occupy us as a church for the next three months. It's the passage that Ed just read for us, Romans 12, 9 to 21. We will read that passage together often in the weeks to come. In my mind, it ranks right up there with 1 Corinthians 13 in its beauty as a description of the kind of life to which we're called. Paul here is expressing the same desire as John when he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, in the first 12 chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul has expounded God's love for us in the gospel, how we were helpless sinners under the convicting burden of the law and having turned away from God who made us to go our own way, we were all justly under God's wrath, Paul has written. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And through Christ's obedient life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, we were made righteous before God. We are justified in his sight as we turn away from our rebellion against God and simply come to Jesus empty-handed in faith. And in our union with Christ through faith, we enter into a new life, the life of the Spirit in which we're being transformed as new creatures in Christ. So at the beginning of chapter 12 of this letter to the Romans, uh, Paul can say, therefore, in view of God's mercy in the light of this glorious gospel that he's just been expounding, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and pleasing to God. This is your, your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, you will prosper as human beings in God's world. And then Paul moves on in verse 3 of that chapter to speak of this new body, the new community that the gospel creates and that we are necessarily a part of, this new family of the church. And this new body, he says there, is characterized both by its unity, we are one in Christ, but also by its diversity. We have different gifts with different functions according to the grace that God has given to each one of us by the Spirit. And as we live together and labor together as a body, we are to display together the character of Christ who is our head. And so beginning in verse 9 in chapter 12, Paul describes the qualities of life that ought to animate and permeate that body of Christ. And among those qualities, one reigns supreme and captures them all. It's the quality he calls sincere love. And one commentator puts it like this, as Christ is the unity in which the many are built into one body, so it is love that binds everything together. Love is, so to say, the circulation of the blood in the body of Christ, through which all its parts and members are immediately related to each other and bound together in a oneness. It is love that makes the members share each other's lot, bear each other's burdens, and share each other's joys. Love flows from one to another, but ultimately comes from Christ himself. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love must be sincere. That's what Paul says there in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Now, the Greek original is simply two words, sincere love. It's as if that's the title, that's the heading of all that is to come. Uh, Paul here seems to be saying, let me tell you about this one family value that stands above all others, that one quality that was passed down to me from the Lord Jesus himself, who said that this was to be the single most significant distinguishing mark of his disciples. Let me tell you about this quality of love. For if we do not have love, we have nothing. For the word love here, Paul uses the Greek word agape, agape. Now, this was not a new word. Christians did not invent this word. It existed already in Greek. But it was not a common word for love in the Greek language. Perhaps the more common Greek words for love already had some negative associations or perhaps were too laden with pagan concepts. We don't know. But for whatever the reason, the Christians chose to take this less common word for love, agape, and to fill it with new meaning, describing the highest of moral virtues. For it was now defined in terms of the revelation of God 
in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. For Jesus, as no one else, shows us what love is. Real love. Sincere love. The love that flows from God himself. Jesus shows us what authentic love looks like. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. As I have loved you, Jesus said, so you must love one another. And John, reflecting on that in in his letter, says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought also to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So Paul wants us to reflect on this Jesus-defined love. And he writes, let your agape love be sincere. Let it be genuine, authentic, literally without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. The word hypocrite in the Greek world referred to an actor in the ancient theater who played various roles in a play, often by putting on different masks. But true love, Paul says, is anhypocritos. It is unhypocritical because it does not play act. Real love is not counterfeit. It's not a mask of pretense, but a sincere expression of one's intentions. Don't just pretend to love as if love were an act, a masquerade, an outward show, but but love truly from the depths of your own being. And the assumption here is that we can be tempted to love hypocritically, to appear to be loving for some self-seeking, self-exalting reason. And I think that's very true. People do it all the time. And let me confess to you, such hypocritical love is in fact a pastoral vocational hazard. You see, as a pastor, I am expected to be loving. And quite often I have to battle within myself whether I'm really doing something to help someone for their benefit or for mine. You see, as a pastor, I'm supposed to be a loving person and I want to be seen as a loving person. But that's got it wrong. For real love happens when the people we are loving become an end in themselves and not the means to my fulfillment. And God sees through our pretense, our hypocrisy. Uh, John Calvin, who's an astute judge of human character, he says this. He says, it is difficult to express how ingenious almost all men are in counterfeiting a love which they do not really possess. They deceive not only others, but also themselves, while they persuade themselves that they have a true love for those whom they not only treat with neglect, but also, in fact, reject. How true that is. I think of the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember that story? The the righteous Pharisee was quite sure of himself. I mean, he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But Jesus held that man up as an example of hypocritical love, one with false motives, one acting to make himself look good rather than really seeking the good of those he served. That Pharisee was full of himself. And are we all inclined to be like that? Now, I suppose insincere love is better than sincere evil. And sometimes insincere love is all we can muster. But God wants a love that is sincere, genuine, authentic. Sincere love 
That's the heading. That's, that's the theme. That's what we're going to be talking about for the next three months. And I admit that talking about love can seem rather shallow. I mean, we know, you know all we need is love. Wouldn't the world be a better place if we all just loved one another? It seems rather sappy and sentimental, doesn't it? I think of the cute little heart, little red heart. Love is almost the equivalent of being nice. It's almost the same as just not doing any harm. But I want you to see that the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated had both depth and demand. You see, the love that Jesus demonstrated resulted in his death. And so instead of picturing a cute little red heart, picture a bloody cross. There's nothing shallow or sentimental about Jesus' love. And I think if we take this passage seriously, we will discover the same thing in our own lives. So in verse 9, Paul introduces this theme. And in the verses that follow, Paul will tell us what this true, sincere love looks like. And I tell you, you cannot read these verses without being deeply challenged and convicted. You see, here Paul, the apostle, paints a picture of the good life. And I think together these verses present a beautiful description of what human beings were created to be, reflecting the character of God in the image of Jesus Christ. For this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to produce in our lives. Sincere love. This is what a community characterized by the grace and truth of Jesus Christ might look like. It's one characterized by sincere love. For you see, this is why we exist We exist to embody the gospel, to live it out, not just in in what we say, but in how we live. And so what a tragedy it is, what an insult to the gospel, how offensive it is when Christians do not display this sincere love. When Christians become hypocrites, denying with their lives the message that comes from their lips. So I know we will all be challenged by what the Lord through the Apostle Paul has to say to us. For I know that this kind of life, characterized by a selfless, sincere love, does not come naturally for me. I'm sorry, Miss Elsa. But if I were to throw off all constraints and freely express my sinful self, it would not be a pretty picture. I would not be free at all. I would be a slave. A slave to my own selfish desires. And certainly my life would not at all resemble the life that Paul sets before us in this passage. You see, that's why I need a new self. I need to be changed from the inside. And you see, that's the promise of the gospel, isn't it? We're promised a new self that comes through a a union with Christ by faith. A new self that is empowered by God's Spirit. For Christian love is shaped neither by the standards of the world nor by the promptings of self, writes Jim Edwards, but by the power of the Holy Spirit bearing witness within believers to the character of God. And maybe maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. And maybe you feel it, this, this downward pull that comes from within. This sense of inability to do what you know what's right. You find yourself a captive too often to the darkness of your own heart. 
You feel guilty, but you don't know what to do about it. Well, let me tell you, Jesus has power. He has power not only to forgive you from your moral failure, but also a power to help you overcome it, to be transformed from within. For your deepest need is a new heart, a new heart. You must give up trying to be true to yourself and instead seek the true self that Jesus Christ offers you. And that gospel truth, that gospel truth applies to all of us. And that's why we must keep coming back to this table, the Lord's table. For you see, it's at this table that we recognize our need of new life in Christ. Here we eat the bread, we drink the cup, and and we act out that union, that communion with Christ that is now ours. In so doing here, you see, we recognize our own sin and Christ's love. For it was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And it was His love that caused Him to willingly bear the penalty our sins deserve. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've declared your faith, if you've baptized and and declared before God's people, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. In this token meal, you are displaying the reality of your new life in Christ, Christ living in you, the hope of glory. And when we come to this table, we say something else. We say, I want to put on Christ. I want to abide in Christ. I want His life to be expressed in my life. We say, oh Lord, live in me. Empower me to live for you. Change me into conformity with Christ so that I may become what you've created me to be, a reflection of your character in the world, a new self filled with sincere, authentic love. If that's your prayer, if you've come to see your need of the redeeming work of Christ in your life and have put your trust in him to make you a person of sincere love, We invite you to come to this table to eat and drink. I invite our servers to come forward as we pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you've created us in your image. But we confess that, Lord, in turning away from you, that image is is spoiled. We don't reflect you as we ought. But we thank you that you have done something about it. You've come to rescue us, to redeem us, to restore us. You've demonstrated what love really is. You've shown it to us in the world, in your son Jesus. He came as an expression of your love. He offered himself as an expression of love. He he died for our sins. He rose again from the grave. He ascended to the Father. He sends the Spirit to transform us so that we might reflect that love. Lord, I pray that you give us a sense of the beauty, the wonder, the the goodness of that love. And you, by your grace, would fill us with your Spirit that we might live this new life to which we're called. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.